0: All right everyone, my name is Kyle Worley and you're listening to a Knowing Faith Remix episode. This is where we go back into the archives of the Knowing Faith episodes and we find an episode that we want to give a little bit more attention to. Back in 2020, things were going wild in the world on many fronts, but we recorded an episode in November of 2020 with Dr. Katie McCoy. The episode was titled Men and Women in a Broken World. It was episode 93, and we really feel like this is one of the best conversations we've had about men and women in the of scripture and men and women, in the life of the church. It clocks in at 51 minutes. And I that's long for a knowing faith episode, but I gotta tell you it was worth it. Dr. McCoy was really, really helpful, and she had some really insightful things to say. We cover things like, if God created men and women to live as compliments to one another, why is there so much division, brokenness, and confusion as we try to do that? How did Aristotle subvert the Hebrew worldview and our own thinking about our faith? Why have we lost this heritage? We talk through things like, how would you respond to someone who said, listen, why are you even trying to make this work? The Old Testament is a misogynist document that subjugates women to male control. We deal with objections. We anticipate them. We uh, uh, address uh, common questions. We hope that you will enjoy this episode. We were really excited to talk to Dr. McCoy and we think you'll profit from hearing it again if you've heard it once and hearing it for the first time if you've never heard it before. We hope you enjoy this episode of Knowing Faith Remix. Engineer Brad, roll the tape. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English. And today we are also joined by Dr. Katie McCoy. Dr. McCoy serves as an assistant professor of theology and women's studies at the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. She holds a PhD from Southwestern in systematic theology, where she wrote on Old Testament laws about women's personhood and what they can show us about human dignity. You can find her online at Orthodoxy and BlondeOrthodoxy.com. Dr. McCoy, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, you guys. Really glad to have you on the show, really. Kyle, you know she said she likes going by Katie. I know, but I, and I was going <laughs> to wait until after the formal introduction. I will now refer to her. <laughs> I mean, I feel like if you do all that work for a PhD, it, you're definitely not making it back in salary, so you need to make it back in recognition. So, well, then, well, then you know what? You should start calling me. <laughs> I'm not going to call you Dr. English. You <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. I was going to say Master.
1: Oh, that's
0: oh, <laughs> not going to happen either. Uh there's just no way that's going to happen. Um but now I do I do know there is something beyond the PhD that Dr. McCoy shares with JT and with the rest of us here which is I believe that you share our love for the West Wing. Is this true?
2: Yes, very very much, okay. especially these days. Uh after this last debate, West Wing is is basically therapy now for all of us. Oh, was oh, there a goodness. debate? But I have to come to Oh, did you, if you missed it, you're in, you're, you're better off. Yes. I have to tell you though, I'm a storkin purist. I, I'm a West okay. Wing fan only for the first four seasons. And then I kind of get through the last three, yeah. but, yeah. but I'm not as into them. Um, it's just, it's I, gotta be.
0: I totally feel that once, once, once she's gets kidnapped, it's like, oh boy, this is, this is the wheels are coming off. JT is showing his uh, West Wing swag here. Yeah, what are you, are, you uh, showing a so he was an intern
3: for a while in TVCI. He now is uh, is a minister there alongside Jan and Mason Elizabeth. Uh, Nathan Campbell once for my birthday gave me a napkin framed that says Bartlett for America, and this is the one item along with my bovink books that I had to make sure made it to Colorado. <laughs> <Of course.
2: laughs> Wait, did he just write on the napkin?
3: Bartlett no, this is this America? is the actual one. No, it's not no, no I'm just kidding. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Uh, no, just kidding. Okay. no, yeah, he just he just wrote this for me and, and gave it to me. Yeah. That's a great...
1: That's no, but really great. Katie, I actually That's agree great, with you. No, but I agree
0: with you, Katie. I've There's
1: been so much conversation about how much we all love the West Wing that I feel like I need to disclose on the broadcast that I have not actually ever even watched the end of the show because I could not bear it when Sorkin left.
2: No, you're not missing anything. Not, not really. There's a few good episodes, but but no, it's really just...
3: I felt like season seven turned it around a little bit. Five yeah, and I six oh, were right downhill, now. but season seven had a little bit of a comeback. There's some good a episodes. scenes.
2: Minus
0: what they did with Toby.
3: A thousand percent. Oh, the, the, Toby,
0: Toby. The, the Toby story arc is terrible. I can't believe they treated that man that way. I, I mean, know. It was no. awful to watch it happen. I mean, it's just brutal. <laughs> And out of nowhere, too, it's like this Mm -hmm. this guy just uh, all of a sudden is betraying national secrets. (laughs) What?
3: Well, and I always found it interesting, Kyle, because you, yes, yes. well, and that's who Kyle wants to be. When we've talked about. Who's which character? Kyle wants to be Toby, and that's where it does make a little sense. Yeah, total betrayal, the- <laughs> backstabbing.
0: <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the part that, of him that I resonate the most with, for sure. <laughs> um, well, uh, Katie, we are really glad to have you on the show. I will not refer to you as Doctor McCoy any longer, but I have done that, and I want it to be noted that Katie is not just Katie; she is Doctor Katie McCoy. And the reason, and the work that she did in her PhD is highly relevant to the conversation that we're having today. Uh, and this just continues a theme. For us of bringing in guests as we go through Genesis one through eleven,
2: I think it shows uh, just the significance of being male and female in relationship together because it reflects uh, just the the height and proportion that that brokenness is. So, in other words, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be so significant in the effects of the sin if it wasn't so significant in what it was intended to be for us. And and this relationship, it goes back to. What God created male and female to be and how to how they were to relate to one another is that they are imaging God, not only in their whole person as an individual, but they're they are imaging something of the character of God in the relationship together. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think some of why it is so confused, confusing, is that like all the effects of sin, it is trying to define and become for ourselves, according to our own will, what God created to be for his good, for our good and for his glory. And so I think part of why we see this confusion and this division is we've, we've lost the connection first of being connected to our creator First of all, without being reconciled to our creator, we're never going to understand what it is to be in relationship with other people. And and I think because of that, we are are imposing um, self-will into our relationships. We impose uh, different cultural categories into our relationships. And I think we miss the whole point of them completely. Um, And one of the ways I think we see this too, even among believers, is there's kind of this... um, infusion of, I would say, hierarchy, And I I don't mean that in getting rid of male headship. Sometimes when I say that, people get a little nervous. Like I'm saying, get rid of headship altogether. That's not it at all. But in terms of hierarchy of superiority and inferiority, Mm -hmm. I think those, between other people, that is an effect of living in a fallen world. And yet we sometimes see theology sort of try to adapt to or amalgamate that cultural idea into what is supposed to be what Pope John Paul II called the community, the communion of persons, Mm -hmm. the communion of persons that um, the man understands who he is as man in relationship with the woman. The woman understands her femininity in relationship with the man. So it's that self-understanding through the other. And it's that holistic relationality that I think is supposed to have been, it was the intent. And with that harmony uh, in the garden, at least. And I think sin has so corrupted that, um, that instead of being relational harmony, now it is hierarchy.
0: That's really interesting. So well, the first thing that you said right out of the gate, you, you brought up a ton of interesting things that I want to come back to. <laughs> and JT and Jen, jump in whenever you want. But um, uh, I think the first thing that you said is an interesting point, which is that we we experience this kind of dissonance in a way that is proportional to the design. Mm-hmm. right? So like... We experience this great dissonance or brokenness of what should be uh, healthy uh, relationships between communion of persons and men and women included in that, and the reason that we feel there to be such a a kind of brokenness and confusion there is because there is a design that's been disrupted. Is that that's kind of what you kind of how you led out of the gate? Is that Mm -hmm. is that that a faithful? Yeah, definitely.
2: Yeah, I mean, if my if my uh, okay, if my if I had a broken spine. I'm going to feel the effects of that more than a broken toe mm-hmm. because I, I need my spine for more things than I need my toe. I mean, the, 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 the degree to which it is integral for me fulfilling my purpose as a human being is the degree to which disproportionately I'm going to feel the, uh, the dysfunction. And I think that's something that we see between male and female and uh, especially especially that relationship of of um, headship helper, headship yeah. helper has now been distorted to to mean something that. Um, I think, really, I think it's more Greek than Hebrew in our understanding of it, and we've got so much of an influence of Greek philosophy, far more than we realize in Western theology um, on these categories, so it's, uh, there's a lot to unpack. Shots shots fired
3: there, Dr. McCoy, shots (laughs)
0: fired. You just
3: said you weren't going to do that anymore. (laughs)
0: Uh, I know, I was like, uh, I'm I'm thinking, you know, right before we got, right before we got on here, I said, listen, uh, now, Dr. McCoy, we're not trying to get any hot takes here, this, and Dr. McCoy's coming out of here going, all right, Katie. I feel like there's, uh, yeah, excuse me, Katie <laughs> is come, coming out of the gate here saying, you know, I think that the Greek philosophy has unduly influenced our, our read on this, which if you're familiar with some of these conversations at an academic level, is a, is a huge thing. I mean, she pretty much just took a blowtorch to a big conversation. Yeah, when, when, when she starts you-
3: taking us to school, then we start calling her Dr. McCoy.
1: <laughs> but I got to tell you, I'm not familiar with those conversations, and I wonder if some of our listeners might not be as well. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about how Greek philosophy might have impacted the way that we think about these things.
2: Yeah, so um, going back to Aristotle, and this isn't at all to, to disparage or denigrate the, the contribution of not only Greek philosophy in the, in the West, but then also um, the, the influence of our patristic fathers who mm-hmm. were Greek Christians largely. Um but, but so much of our, our biblical anthropology was at least influenced by Aristotelian categories. And what Aristotle said was that from the very beginning, um, from the womb, that nature intended to make a man and a woman was essentially a, a malformed, deformed, misbegotten man. Mm-hmm. And um, the reason was because essentially the the male sperm wasn't wasn't powerful and strong enough to to create a male child, so it created a female child. So there's this automatic ontological inequality. What Aristotle said is that um, women were inferior and inferior in their intellect and their powers of reason, and that they, they belonged in the home. They could not go into the city, the polis, where is where really life happens for the Greek, where the center of philosophy and um, political engagement. And, and you have this, public-private divide too that made its way into our theology. And this public-private divide uh, put primacy on the public being out there and it denigrated the home, it denigrated the private life. That's also something that's pretty foreign to Hebrew, Hebrew mm-hmm. thought. Hebrew thought said, your family is the epicenter of your happiness. Your children are the legacy that you leave the world. And so with um, Aristotle's categories, amazingly, you even see the influence on um, Hellenized Jews, that Mm -hmm. Hellenized Jews shifted that primary relationship away from the uh, husband and wife to father-child. And so with that, it became that the home, it wasn't a relationship between the husband and wife with children that they were together, raising, forming, molding. It became that the husband was more of a ruler Mm -hmm. and the wife would have been sort of like a little higher than the child. And then amazingly, this is so funny because... You hear, I think you hear remnants of some that some of the hyper complementarian uh, communities out there um, in Aristotle, where he said that a woman could have a sphere of rule. Um, under the man's authority and mm-hmm. leadership mm-hmm. Um, that she could manage. And that, that sphere was the home. But other than that, you know, he, he needed to be very careful because she wasn't capable of imparting wisdom. Um, her, her mind was simply inferior. She could speak to small groups, but not large groups. And you really see the, I think the, the caricature of what people perceive biblical gender roles to be. Mm -hmm. And I think that is far more influenced by our importing Greek categories and levels into humanity much more than it is the biblical emphasis, which I think Genesis to Revelation, you see it's relationship, it's relationality.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I just, for a listener who might be feeling like, wow, we went from Genesis to Aristotle really quickly. I think that (laughs) it's really important to note that, uh, well, one, I think what what Katie is saying here is invaluable. And it's a conversation that I didn't, I didn't know we would go this direction, uh, uh, but I'm glad that we're there because I think it's been missing in the larger conversation regarding Uh, relationships between men and women I will say that if you're wondering like okay well I don't really see how you get from Genesis to Aristotle it's important to understand that Aristotle real quickly so this influence that she's talking about isn't just like she's not just riffing on this Mm -hmm. Aristotle is the first dominant pre-modern philosopher that gets Mm -hmm. translated into Latin at a crucial time when the church is beginning to kind of systematize its thought and because of that Aristotle gets a lot of play particularly in the medieval period mm-hmm. on the kind of theological categories that then become the order and language for how you're doing theological thinking. And so mm-hmm. this comes over with Avicenna and Averroes, who are Muslim philosophers translating Aristotle into Latin. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. Aquinas picks it up. And because of Aquinas's reliance on Aristotle, he becomes the dominant pre-modern philosopher. So just to give you a sense of how how did Aristotle get into the water, well, The early Greek thinkers are using all of pre modern Greek philosophy, and Aristotle and Plato would have been at the top of that. But then it gets really influenced into the life of the medieval church and then Reformation categories through his translation uh, uh, into. Latin, which becomes the dominant theological language of the literature. So if you, she's not riffing here, I just think it's important to note, she's not just going, yeah, Aristotle had some helpful things. The Hebrews would have been before that, but she's saying, listen, those became important categories. And I think that this is a crucial part of, and like you said, it's even reflected in the church's proclivity now to take our theological categories and amalgamate them with cultural sensibilities regarding gender or Uh, hierarchy or authority or inferiority. So it's something that's been rippling from the beginning, right? Well, well, Kyle, one of the things you
3: said to me once that I'll never be able to forget, it was just really helpful. We We were talking about some philosophical categories and I forget the exact words you used, but you gave me a mental image about how all of us have hitched our wagons to philosophical engines without even realizing it. Mm-hmm. So that's why conversations like this are so important is because there's a whole engine, whether it's Aristotelian or Thomistic thought, or or I, I don't know if we want to go down this path, but I was thinking about this while Katie was speaking, is I think so much of the confusion around gender roles today is because perhaps it's been influenced by Hellenistic and Aristotelianism, and maybe we've adopted that in some In some some church circles, but then the culture has adopted a Freudian sense of self and gender, which is on the exact opposite side of the spectrum. Where I don't want to—I don't want to take anything that might uh, be—I only use a big word—ontologically. What I mean is, is like fundamentally true about being a man or a woman. And rather, Freud would say we have this psychological plastic self that is moldable based upon my will. So there's actually no external categories that you can place upon me as male or as female or as transgender or whatever. And it's ultimately a battle of, of, of uh, def- I'm given the will to decide and define who I want to be. Mm-hmm. And you have mm-hmm. this clash of maybe this Aristotelian or biblical you know, hard biblical categories of manhood and womanhood that are coming into tension with some cultural understandings of what it means to be male and female. And I think that's why so many of us have questions about these things, because yeah. how, how do you, how do you decide?
2: That's fascinating. Yeah. Well, and that's that's what you just said, JT. It um, kind of dovetails into the other extreme of transgender. Mm-hmm. That that now it's it's as you said, there there is no necessary connection between uh, the internal gendered self and the external sexed body. That that's right. that creation and self identity are are completely disconnected. That they're and that they're irrelevant to each other that it's just all self-will, self-definition.
3: Yeah, so there's actually a book that I'm, I'm gonna plug it even though I haven't read it yet, but I have read a few um, reviews on it and the Gospel Coalition has a review up and an article up. Um, Carl Truman wrote a book that should be coming out in November. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Bruce mm-hmm. Ashford, a close friend of mine, talked, Talked about it being the most important book on the self written by a Protestant in over fifty years. So, I and, and this is actually where I'm picking some of this up, where he he actually talks about the the rise of transgenderism. And so, like if you have these Aristotelian let's just clarify, let's simplify for a second, Aristotelian or Hellenistic categories that are very clear lines, authoritatively given because of my sexed or gendered body that is biologically true. Therefore, that gives me a sense of self and identity as a soul or as a person. Uh, Freud in transgenderism takes the exact opposite approach of saying there is no external authority, whether that be biblical revelation or natural law that can tell me what I am other than my ability to decide who I am. And actually where he takes this in the book is he, he ends up talking about all of the psychological challenges that like college students are facing on the campuses because uh, they've never been given a sense of authority outside of themselves until they're confronted with them. And he talks about how this is actually the rise this has caused the rise of anxiety and mental illness among young adults because they're unwilling to identify with any external authority that would say this is who you
0: are. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Do you feel like, uh, Katie, do you feel like there's ever been a time, I mean, you studied Old Testament law as it related to personhood of women. Has there ever been a time where there's this much confusion surrounding Mm. men and women? I mean, like, just, I mean, I, I, on your read on it, when you look at the Old Testament literature, were people, were Israelites walking around wondering, I wonder what a man is and I wonder what a woman is?
2: Nothing, not that we can see. And in part because they're in, in Hebrew thought, you know, like when Jesus said, love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength we because we are westerners we divide those and to the hebrew mind it's what the lord is saying love the lord your god with all of you with mm-hmm. your whole person and so to from from what i understand in the hebrew mind there wasn't this division there wasn't this dichotomy between the body and the soul, um, and and all throughout Scripture, we, our resurrection will be physical, and and we will be physical beings for the rest of our eternal existence. And so, we we have our own theological categories. We have to be mindful of the fact that that we are prone to overly separating the physical and the spiritual. But when you talk about like, has there ever been confusion to this degree? I think yes and no, actually, because on on the yes side, I think we can look all throughout church history and see that, that Christians were always responding to good, bad, and ugly influences of their culture. So in the medieval era, women were seductresses. Um, in the Victorian era, women were, you know, little weak flowers. Who you were masculine if you were too intellectual, and a woman shouldn't try to be too educated. and And chastity was essential for women, but it really wasn't for men. And so that that flies in the face of biblical teaching. And then you get into second wave feminism and there's confusion over the source of a woman's identity and fulfillment and how she should relate to her family and discover that fulfillment. So I think all throughout different eras of church history, the church was doing theology and like us, they were doing it in a cultural context. Mm -hmm. And so they were doing it imperfectly. And years from now, decades from now, people will look at us and say, man, these people in knowing faith got some things right and got some things wrong. <laughs> be like you're right, we did get some things right and some things wrong because we're, we're ever striving to represent the the fullness of truth wholly, fully and entirely and for God's glory. So that's on the yes side. On the no side, I do think what what we see that is so different as JT was referring to with the influence of this Freudian sense of, Self determination. um, We now have this increase in gender fluidity and believing that gender is disconnected from our bodies. That, like Judith Butler, it's just a performance. It's something that we adapt to. And um, you remove the the imposition of cultural expectations, and you're free to become who you want to be. So, with transgender ideology becoming more and more mainstream. Which, by the way, the irony of that, it's like a fraction of a percent, but it's it's so uh, pushed. There's such a clear agenda culturally. Um, now, these expressions uh, are, are so vital. Because here's, here's one of the ironies. 50 years ago, second wave feminism said... That a woman is oppressed because she was born female, she is a woman, and being a woman has nothing to do with expressions of gender, like her clothes, her hair, her tone of voice, that that's not the essence of womanhood. Fifty years later, on the other side of the gender equality fight, you have the transgender community saying that a woman is who someone determines he or she is. Mm-hmm. And that determination depends on and is expressed by social expressions of gender, like hair, clothes, tone of voice. So it's the irony. And this is something that it's this riff in the feminist community. Even the irony is that the gender equality argument is kind of imploding on itself mm-hmm. and even more confusion, even in secular spheres of what is a woman. And, and if it truly is, something that um, is self-determined, self-identified, then there's now no sphere in which a woman is protected, not a bathroom, not a locker room, not sports, just nothing. And so this is the effect of the self-willed argument of gender
3: equality. That's really good, Katie.
0: We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life study Bibles for women and the Courage for Life study Bibles for men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at Courage for Life Bible Com. That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. I think partly, you know, if I could just play just kind of the other side of this, like Jen, let's imagine you, you've you've taught through so many Old Testament books. We're going through Genesis right now. You've been an advocate for the old uh, for reading and a thorough reading and study of the Old Testament. These categories that we're talking about. How could we expect? You know, if I could just—I'm speaking the other side of the argument here. How could we expect? Some Kyle, dumb, Kyle, tell us what you really think. How could we? How could, how, how could we expect some of these dumb, illiterate desert nomads for being conversant in these categories? Is it doesn't it make sense that we've moved beyond the witness of gen- Genesis on gender? Haven't we discovered more about these things? So let's say there's a—you know—there's a somebody using your Bible study, and they're going well, why would I take what any of these people have to say seriously?
1: Our immediate problem with that question is that, as we've talked about so much, people are coming to these passages with lenses already on. And uh, so they're reading... Genesis and Exodus, and they're looking for it. like I'm sure Katie saw this as she was. I would imagine this was an impetus behind what she um, did her PhD in, is that people come and they're horrified by something that would not have horrified the original audience, or um, or they're mm-hmm. um, sort of layering their own understanding on top of it based on whatever the cultural conversation has been, and and yet the closer that you get to these texts, if you if you kind of say to yourself, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna come to these texts, I'm just gonna read which obviously is, is it's never that simple. But sometimes in the in the act of just repetitive reading, you start to shed some of the things you carried in the door and just be able to hear a little more clearly what the, the story is saying. And, and you begin to see the repeated patterns, the images that are used, and you start to, like, I had this experience last week um, looking at the Exodus narrative and realizing that the opening vignette in Exodus where the midwives are given to us uh, as the opening story. Like we, we all kind of in our heads think that the story starts with Moses, right? Uh, But if you're paying attention, it starts with that story of the midwives standing up to Pharaoh and, and recognizing, Oh my goodness. The reason this is placed at the head of the book is because it's the overarching metaphor. It's the tableau for the whole book Um, that, that what these midwives do is an introduction into what God himself will do for his people because it says he hears and responds to their groanings. Like from then on, the whole language of the book is is birth language. Um, and that God is given to us as mm. the great midwife. And not only that, but then Moses and Aaron become like Shifra and Pua to deliver the nation of Israel uh, throughout the rest of the book. And so you're reading that and you're thinking, oh my gosh, am I a feminist because I just saw, you know, that God might be a midwife? And then you realize, no, there are actually these passages in the Psalms or in Jeremiah that refer to him in the same kind of language. And and you don't reach the conclusion that God is a feminist. You reach the conclusion, or that God is a woman. You reach the conclusion that the Hebrew mind was not thinking and talking and conceiving along the same kind of lines that that we try to. And that's why it was fascinating to me to hear Katie, talk about Aristotle. I know a little about that, um, but and I guess my follow up question would be to Katie: like, how did Aristotle subvert the Hebrew worldview in our own thinking about our faith? Oh man, that's a big one. Uh, <laughs> like, why don't why have we lost this heritage? I think that, yeah,
2: I think I think um, really losing the relational emphasis. Because what, what you were describing too, Jen, I I'd, I'd never
0: heard of that before. That was that was fascinating. Um She it, does that all the time, Katie. Yeah, that was just <laughs>
2: like, like I'm j-
0: JT and I are over here just like meandering along, and then she'd be like, "Well, I was having this thought while I was reading God's word recently," and then that's that's the quotable thing of the episode. So just <laughs> buckle, buckle your seatbelt. That is our reality, okay, yeah, sister. So our, is-
3: our main goal is to always speak first because if we waited so, till speaking after Jen, it, we just had nothing to say. No, I I was that's
1: just so teac- right. I that's was great. teaching um, it last week, but there was there one. I mean, the other thing that jumps out is. In in that story, even around this this word we've made so much of that Azer word, you know that that's that's a woman word, right? Um, right. And, and yet you look at what happens in Exodus when Jethro comes to Moses, and you so you and he says um, he basically looks around at newly created Israel and says it is not good for Moses to be alone. He's going to need helpers. Hmm. And so it's like, but but we mm. think no 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 that's yeah. Genesis language that's applied to the woman. So now for henceforth and always we will say that Azer means woman, but sometimes God when when people think that it's not enough of a term just for women, but the, but the Hebrews are using it interchangeably. Yeah. They're using it wherever they want to.
2: Yeah, the and then that Ezer uh, the Kinego the um, the idea of I think in in Hebrew culture it was the idea of a helper standing face to face. Mm-hmm. Or standing in front of, um, and so that that the idea being that that community again that community of persons um, is it's two people standing in front of each other and and not only corresponding to she not only corresponded to the man but she in a sense helped the man understand who he was. Mm-hmm. And so, and then the man understanding who, or the woman understanding who she was according to the man. So I think it's this, this principle of that we are relational beings first. Mm-hmm. And and I think one of the things that that we've lost in our in our theological discourse on gender, you pick up a book in most books on this. From from generally a view that, that you we would all hold, and you see it in terms. You see it explained in terms of levels, levels of authority. Now, I don't want to downplay that because I feel like we it gets a little um, murky when you start making it like a mutually exclusive thing. That there is headship. There's headship in the Bible, but but that headship is in terms of responsibility, yeah. not rights. I, I don't see I don't see language of rights. Yeah, in the Bible, and so where I think um, so much of our theological discourse um, in in the West can can be unduly influenced mm-hmm. is is by by taking things that we're supposed to be relationships of responsibility and making them about uh, authority uh, in terms of rights and um, not not authority. Sorry, I misspoke. Taking taking. Um, a relationship of responsibility and making it uh, in terms of hierarchy to rule hierarchy of rights. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just, I think if we, if we were to, to take on a more Hebrew perspective, even in how the Lord related to women in his earthly ministry, um, there were ministries to which he only appointed men, but those men had, it wasn't about rule. It was about responsibility. Mm -hmm. These, These men were responsible um, but you look at the way that Jesus related to women, still as full persons. The fact that they didn't have the same uh, they did the same places of responsibility did not uh, change his relationship with them in terms of how he related to their theological questions and their spiritual needs. So I think much of it is that if we were to recover anything, it's recovering this um, this relational emphasis that.
0: I think it's all throughout scripture
2: and it's the whole reason why else did God make us, but to have a relationship with us.
0: I -hmm. I agree. And I think from that relational, uh, what we might talk about like in terms of a a relational ontology or relational metaphysic that we exist as beings that only exist appropriately in relationship to others, namely another being, which would be God, and then others like us, which would be the gender complement, men and women. I think that from that flows what you're talking about, Katie, as a a stronger or a more cohesive relational epistemology. And this is not... This is not, again, we're not just riffing. There have been voices calling for this for years. I think of Esther Meek with her appeals to covenant epistemology that Mm. prioritize a Hebraic understanding of what it means to know and be known in the face of more formal Greek categories that, that were introduced uh, by somebody like uh, Aristotle, um, which is th- this idea that we really can only truly know each other when we are encountering one another, that knowledge is not merely categorical or propositional, but that knowledge is experiential and encounter driven. And I think that that's a huge component that is a uh, is playing itself out, particularly in the old Testament scriptures that we lose, uh, that, or not lose entirely, but is certainly shaded over by some of the Greek categories that emerge in the life of the early church. And I think that applies to this conversation and with regard to gender as well, that, uh, we are more willing to propositionalize or, um, conceptualize gender categories than we are to uh, acknowledge the uniqueness of the person in front of us, that they are Mm -hmm. uniquely male or uniquely female. We feel the need to either create these as categories or to create them as abstractions. And the impulse is the same in both of those movements, which is to decouple gender from actual persons. And once you've done that, I think that you're on the same road, whether you feel like it leads to a more formal categorical destination, where you have clear gender hierarchy, hierarchy, like you would see in Aristotle, or Uh, incredible gender fluidity like you see in somebody like Freud. Uh, Because once it's a concept and not intrinsic to people, well, then you've pretty much seeded the argument, I think. Jen, you Hmm. have something to add here?
1: No, I actually want to change the subject. Because I feel like with Katie on here, we have a rare opportunity to do something that we might not again. Um, Okay. Katie, you have spent time staring down some of the toughest passages in scripture for women. And I would like for you to walk us through what you think is probably the most difficult one for women to hear, most difficult Old Testament law, and help us see how our own presuppositions cause that gut-wrenching fear in us and how we can resolve it. Can you do that with one of them? Absolutely. Let me uh, make sure I get the
2: actual passage here. Um, It's in Numbers, and it is Numbers, I believe it's Numbers 5. And it is called the the trial by ordeal is sometimes what it's called. Um, yeah, it starts in uh, verse eleven numbers five, verse eleven to the end of the chapter. Um, I think this is such a challenging law in part because it, there's no reversal for it there's no uh, there's no parallel law that provides for a woman who is suspicious of a uh, a husband who has been possibly unfaithful, and this is one of the things with Old Testament law to to keep in mind that so many times when we're encountering them, it's something uh, that that perhaps. Hebrew law is mirroring a law that was also in place in another culture. So for Mm -hmm. instance, like middle Assyrian law, uh, Sumerian law. And so uh, sometimes it's that the Lord is saying, okay, when this situation happens among you, here's how you are going to be holy and different from all of these, these other pagan cultures. Mm -hmm. Here's how my people are going to stand out. And, Every time I encounter laws like this, it, it makes me, it. I don't see how you can know what they mean and not want this God. Because it's like this God is saying, this is what justice looks like. This is what a righteous society looks like. So in this test for um, a, an unfaithful wife or the law of the suspected adulteress, mm-hmm. a, a man, if he is just suspicious of his wife, that she's been impure and it could be like, maybe she's pregnant and he's wondering if, if the child is his, she can, um, it could be that she was, you know, having some flirtatious relationship, whatever it is, but it's causing suspicion for this husband. And the husband is able to bring her to the priest and she undergoes this enormous trial. And, Mm -hmm previous, in other cultures, if, if a man did that, or she was accused of being unfaithful, she had to do something like throw herself in the river. And if she survived, then she, then she was, um, innocent. And if she died, then she must've been guilty. But in Hebrew law, a woman is brought directly to the Lord. And the Lord is the one who adjudicates the case. The Lord is the one who reveals the verdict. And so this woman is brought to the priest and she stands directly before the Lord and this priest, what he does is he puts dust from the tabernacle floor into this mixture of bitter herbs, the bitter herbs representing what would happen to her, this bitterness that would happen to her if she if she was guilty. So immediately by putting dust from the tabernacle floor, um, there's something holy that is in this water and uh, categorically all throughout biblical law if something that is holy comes into the presence of something that is morally unclean it's lethal it's fatal Mm -hmm. then uh, the priest um writes down all of the 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 curse that will this woman will incur if she is guilty and he does something so fascinating. He takes the scroll and he scrapes off scrapings of this scroll into this solution the significance of that in the Hebrew mind is that the name of the Lord was written on this scroll. And by scraping off sediments from this scroll, the name of the Lord was being mistreated. It was being um, almost disrespected. But this is God's law to adjudicate uh, a very vulnerable woman. And she would drink this solution, that um essentially it was like she was taking in the name of the Lord. And by drinking in this solution, then the Lord was the one who adjudicated the case. If she was guilty, she had um what euphemistically, it's like a, a her thigh swells or her belly swells, her thigh drops. Basically means like a like a prolapsed uterus, likely. Mm-hmm. It's she has like kind of a shutdown of her reproductive system. Mm-hmm. If she's innocent, then um she's restored to her husband and she can. She can bear a child, which was a vindicating thing in this culture. So what's fascinating about this um, is a couple of things. First of all, there's no mob rule. There's no mm-hmm. suspicion. She's not tried by public opinion. She's tried directly by the Lord. Um, and, and the Lord is the one who makes sure um, that, that her reputation is restored, the second thing that's really fascinating is in other ancient Near Eastern legal codes, um, they stipulate how a man can physically hurt his wife um, mm-hmm. if she's found to have been unfaithful or for some other reason. They, you know, at least twist her ears, um, I think cut her nose, pull out her hair, uh, things like that in Middle Assyrian law is what it is, it, I believe it is. So in Hebrew law, you don't have any of that. Um, now, it's an argument from silence, but I believe what this demonstrates is that domestic abuse was outlawed. There, there was no category for domestic abuse. Mm-hmm. When you look at all these other laws in in biblical law, it's regulating how something should happen. And even things that God did not intend, like how a man should treat his concubine, how a man should mm-hmm. treat his second wife. It's regulatory. We don't see a regulation for domestic abuse like we do in other ancient Near Eastern legal codes. I believe that is because there was no legal category in which it would ever be justifiable. Mm. So this is, I think, one of the most challenging laws in part because the natural thing is, well, what happens if she suspected that he committed adultery? And of Mm -hmm. course, adultery um, was a capital offense for male and female, but we don't have a parallel law, which frankly is kind of difficult in, our, in a legal system of, of parity, where we value parity, it's difficult. But at the same time, looking at it that from the perspective of a woman whose financial, economic, social security was her marriage, mm-hmm. that she risked losing that on the basis of a rumor or suspicion. And the Lord was the one who, unlike any other law, he inserted himself into the trial, inserted himself into the verdict. And he was the one who vindicated the innocent woman.
1: Which would mean, with an with an omniscient God, then that no woman who was innocent would ever be found guilty under that trial. Yes, yeah.
2: Mm. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that? I mean, other cultures, women don't have that kind of protection, even today.
0: Wow, I, I got to tell you, this is one of the passages in my Bible. I have it open in front of me, and if if the audience was here, I could show it to them. But like, I'll I'll put like a um, exclamation point and question mark near what are hard passages in scripture. And when I turn to this, I I I, I wouldn't have known what numbers five said unless you. Like, walk through it. Um, but uh, but I actually turned to Numbers five, and, and this passage has like the exclamation point in question next to it, which is like when I see that in my Bible, it's like a clue to me that, like, hey, probably don't need to try to say anything authoritative about this passage, because <laughs> you, you don't have a clue what it's talking about. Uh, and uh, man, that that was really, uh, I would have. I've never looked at it close that closely to be able to see that, but it is incredible when you think about just God's goodness at coming to this. We've talked a lot in the past on the show about how, it is a part of the kindness of God that he reveals himself and he reveals his character to the people in redemptive history in a way that is befitting of their time and categories. That That's mm-hmm. actually a part of the condescension of God that he doesn't, you know, he tabernacles among them in a tent. He didn't build a mansion. Why? Because they would have never known what that was, you know, or like he didn't show up in a double wide, right? Like that would have been categorically busting for them. He could have just been like build me a double-wide trailer and carted it around the ancient Near East. He didn't do that because they were familiar with tents. They weren't familiar with double-wides. And so when we think Hmm. in some of this stuff where we still see that dissonance and that unfamiliarity, it's like, wow. But what you've just showed us here is that in this passage, which on a very surface level reading appears to be incredibly dissonant with any category we would know, is actually Mm -hmm. a demonstration of God's providential kindness and governance in a situation where there was not an ancient Near Eastern comparison. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's incredible. Katie, um, maybe just to kind of land the plane for us here, uh, and you've done such a good job, of, of, I think, of addressing this, and that was a great example. But like, how would you respond to someone who hears what you did your PhD in, who hears the kind of work you just did in Numbers 5 in a few minutes, bringing clarity to a place that feels confusing, and then says, listen, why are you even trying to make this work? Like, isn't just the Bible and the old testament a misogynistic document that like necessarily subjugates women to male control? Like, like if they just said, listen, that's cool. The like what you just did there is cool, but aren't you just trying to like force a square peg into a round hole? Like, isn't all of this just gymnastics? How would you respond? Yeah. And let's say it's a good faith disagreement. Like they're they're genuinely saying, like, they're not just trying to be a provocateur, they're they're really saying aren't we just really avoiding the fact that at its core, this is what the Old Testament is?
2: Hmm, that's a great question. Um, well, first, connecting what, what you just did, that the Lord was revealing himself in a particular time, in a particular culture to a particular people. But whenever I encounter the Old Testament law, I have to always be mindful. His law is revealing his character and essentially his value system. And, and that's what all laws do. That's why, we, that's why we advocate for legal changes in our own societies, is that we look at a law and we see, as you use the term, that dissonance of this, this law does not match what is valuable to uh, what I believe is true, righteous, just, and good. So anytime we encounter God's law, we're, we're encountering his value system, his character, and especially in um, a time in which we are having so many vital conversations about what is a just society. Mm -hmm. Um, this is not an argument for theonomy in in any sense, but, but if we're not going back to the old Testament law to say, okay, in the ancient near East, this is what justice looked like. This is what loving your neighbor looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a verse that I don't have the reference in front of me, but there's a verse talking about what to do. If you see your neighbor's oxen, well, it, none of us have oxen running around, but, but the principle is you inconvenience yourself to take care of the interests of your neighbor and you ensure that that which is important to your neighbor becomes your problem. Mm-hmm. Well, wouldn't that be relevant <laughs> to some of the things that we're, we're dealing with now? doesn't necessarily tell us how to do that legislatively or how to deal with certain theories, but the principle of it still applies and it will apply 50 years from now, 500 years from now. Um, What we see in especially Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, um, even by Hebrew scholars, people who um, we wouldn't, I don't think we'd call them evangelicals. They look at it and they say, this is a progressive book for the legal status of women. This is a progressive book. I think I'm sure we could look at it and say, this is a progressive book for the poor, for the immigrant. Um, now, when I say progressive, that term, it's often hijacked to mean a political ideology. Not at all. What I mean is a value for the human being as one created in God's image. And I think in our conversations on justice and a righteous society, that if we can shift away from talking about it in terms of this power dynamic that we we hear espoused and repackaged and instead talk about it in terms of what is my responsibility to my neighbor who is created in God's image? That's everything that the early church did. Mm-hmm. That's everything that the first Christians did. And, and what is that? That, but but the fulfillment of the law, to love yeah. the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so um, I, I think this is something where we Christians, I would love for to, to see us become a people who knew the enduring principles mm-hmm. that God is teaching through his Old Testament law and then looking at how do we apply that? How do we apply that principle and idea to our context today. Um, and there's there's so much more. I mean, even what we just did on in Numbers 5, that, that can teach us about things like mob rule and yep. uh, waiting to hear all of the facts before making a judgment. I mean, those are principles that we need today. So um, what I would say to someone who says the Old Testament is a misogynistic document, the other thing we have to keep in mind, um, we've got some great laws on our books, and we're still a pretty misogynistic society in many ways. So <laughs> <laughs> we can't. We can't automatically assume that we are the moral superiors in yeah. that conversation. Um, and so maybe that's part of our problem. Is we need to sit down under the Bible again and recognize that this is God's self revelation to us. That's probably step number one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Katie, thank you so much for jumping on today. I mean, I felt like, golly, we just, we, we hit so much to write. I mean, we went from <laughs> Aristotle, you quoted, we didn't even talk about John Paul II, J2P2 at all. You just yeah. threw him out there just and in, in, running through it. And then we were in Numbers 5. I mean, we were all over the place, but it was so rich. And so thank you for joining us. Yeah, we
3: could have, we could have teased that out into a whole season. it feels yeah, like Well,
1: I feel like no doubt, we, we probably no need, we need to send her some special gifts because I'm looking at the run sheet, which I know our listeners think we probably don't even use, but I'm looking at this thinking, <laughs> oh my word, we set her up with one thing and then we just dragged her all over the place. So you, you it's really true. thank you for for uh, indulging us. Oh, really? so
0: she's well, a pro. She is a pro and a doctor dr mccoy mm-hmm. um, and i'm your and i'm your master <laughs> oh, gosh, no, 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 we're it. not we're not going there we're not going there listen you can you can join the conversation by finding knowing faith on social media at knowing faith you can go to patreon.com slash knowing faith you can find dr mccoy on twitter at blonde orthodoxy uh, or you can find her at BlondeOrthodoxy.com. in our next episode we're going to be looking at the story of the tower of babel thank you for jumping in the conversation grace and peace